welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. A Congruent Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives. Here's your host, Andy Gray. Welcome to A Congruent Life, where we're sharing inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness and exploring congruence from many different perspectives. My name is Andy Gray. Thanks for joining in with us, wherever you might be. This is episode number 12 of A Congruent Life, where I'm talking with A.J. Leone. A.J. calls himself a professional troublemaker. He lives a multifaceted nomadic life as a writer, designer, entrepreneur, and humanitarian. AJ and I talked on his cell phone, so I'm sorry that parts of our conversation are a bit harder to hear than normal, but please stick with it. AJ has lots of great wisdom to share. I'm talking today with AJ Leon, a self-proclaimed misfit, writer, and humanitarian who runs a popular website called Pursuit of Everything and wrote a remarkable collection of essays called The Life and Times of a Remarkable Misfit. AJ, welcome to A Congruent Life. Hey, thanks. It's great to, great to be with you here. So AJ, in your own words, what is it that you do? Oh, man, such a complicated question. You know, I find that to be literally the most difficult question to answer because I do a, a, a lot of different things. You know, the easiest answer is I run a company called Misfit Incorporated. And when you delve into that, Misfit is, is made up of many sub-projects and businesses all related to the Misfit ethos. It's different expressions. I mean, one side is creative services business where we design basically artisan handcrafted websites for um, high-tech companies, very kind of small practice. Um, we don't really advertise our services, but we have uh, people asking us to do that type of work, um, content strategy stuff as well. Um, we publish our own creative arts magazine. Um, we run a conference series called Mystic Comp, which we just produced in Fargo. So I'm publishing my own book through our own press called Misfit Press. Uh, we launch humanitarian projects all the time. We just helped launch a project called Jai Coffee House, um, which is the first philanthropic coffee roaster in the world based out of Laos. Another one called Good Misfit, where we've raised $15,000 this month for women in Kenya. So, so do quite a few different types of things. I love hearing stories about people that have enough personal insight and wisdom to sort of identify that a life that they've constructed just isn't really working for them. And then in some way have the wherewithal to make constructive changes to live life differently. And that's your story in spades. You uh, used to be an executive for a financial firm on Wall Street and then made some pretty radical changes in your life. Can you maybe tell that story a little bit about, first of all, what led you to, to work on Wall Street and then what led you to make changes? How did you know that you needed to make some changes in your life? Sure. I mean, in my late teens, early 20s, I did precisely what I was supposed to do. I was kind of the poster boy for the archetype of the system. You know, you go to university and you get the highest grades you can possibly get. I remember sitting in a Barnes and Nobles when those things still existed um, and actually choosing my major out of a book. I don't know if you remember those books that they used to have, and they would list majors and then the earning potential of a particular degree course over a lifetime. And I, that is how I chose, and I kind of zeroed in on accounting and finance, not, not, not from passion, but from how much money I could make um, moving into that realm. And I think a lot of people made choices that way. You know, I graduated uh, from my 
uh, university with great marks. Um, I ended up taking the, the largest offer from the biggest firm I could find paying the most money. I didn't care where I'd be or what I'd be doing, really. Um, it, was, it was more about how much money I could make over time. Uh, of course, in my early 20s, I made a series of vertical leaps from one organization firm to another at the precise moment to extract the highest earning potential and signing bonus, which led me to a place where I was, you know, I was in, I was in Manhattan. I had a corner office uh, overlooking Manhattan. I was making a well six-figure salary, you know, a bonus that was outrageous. You know, I was incredibly, incredibly, quote-unquote, successful, but absolutely incongruent with who, who I am as a person. And that led to a place for me, which the day was December 31st, 2007, and I was called into my boss's office. I was offered, kind of sat there and talked with me for a little bit. I was getting married in four days. And he knew this, and he wanted to give me this news that I was getting a promotion that would kick in at the beginning of the year. And with that promotion, I would get a raise on the already exorbitant salary that I was making. And, you know, I would be minted. I was basically on a track to be become a partner. I walked out of his office. I walked back to my home. I shut the door. I looked out over Manhattan. And I just started to weep. You know, I just started to cry all alone in my office because I realized that I was trapped. You know, I was absolutely diametrically trapped. And the reason why I was trapped is, like, I, I had always thought, of, you know, had these, these ideas that, I, you know, someday I'll be out of this. Someday I will live a life of adventure. And I, I'll do the things that I always want. And then that little flicker of hope came to a crashing demise uh, when I realized that I, I was just offered so much money that I'd never be able to walk away. And that's the insidious relationship we have with money as humans. The more money you make, the harder it is to walk away and to make choices for yourself. And that was certainly me. And then there was kind of a moment of clarity where it had occurred to me. It was probably the deepest, most depressing moment of my life. And then it occurred to me that maybe, just maybe, somehow, some way, I had been conned into living some other dude's life. Maybe I was never supposed to be here. And maybe this is my one chance to get out. Maybe I go to the elevator and walk out the door. And then that's what I did. You know, I, I realized that that's all I had, that there was no negotiating. There was no, well, I'll do it for six months. And then I realized if I didn't walk away right then at that moment, I was going to be the guy for the rest of my life. And I could see the 60-year-old version of myself working back in the and wanting the glory of the life that could have been. But that's long answer to a short question, but that, that, that's the story arc that led me to um, what I'm doing today. What an amazing amount of clarity, though. It, it must have been terrifying thinking of getting married in four days and, and being at that critical juncture in your career. Yeah, it's mortifying. I mean, it was everything that I had ever known, you know. And for me, walking out, I mean, I burned that bridge. And I, I realized that I did not, you know, that was the end of everything that I had ever known or studied for or had given all my time to um, professionally. And I'm about to get married. And and anyone who's been married before knows how much money you spend before that. So I, I didn't, I didn't have any money. I had no savings. There was no plan B. You know, it, it wasn't wise like some people that, that kind of recognize that they sh that they shouldn't be in the situation that they're in, and they work over two years to get out of it. It was, it was just one moment for me. 
So I had two grand in savings, which wasn't even enough to pay my next month's rent. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, uh, but uh, to be honest, when you're faced with not only mortality, but when you're faced with a prophecy, a certain prophecy of your future, which you abhor, that idea of that being me, like that's not another guy, this is me, I'm going to be this guy for the rest of my life, and it is my life, and it is my one and only, and that prospect, that fear actually circumvented the fear of how am I going to pay that next month, you know, because it became a very real thing to me all of a sudden. So what was that like telling Melissa about this transition for you? That was my first call, obviously. <laughs> I, I walked out the door and I, I hit the street and I immediately felt for the first time in my life that I was free. And I called Melissa right then and there because she was, and at the time, planning the wedding. She was with her mom <laughs> when I called her and I told her what had happened. I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, I'd rather be with the real you and live with the real you under the Brooklyn Bridge than live with an impersonation of you anywhere else. Um, I'm just glad I had you back. We've known each other for a very, very long time. Both and I have been together since we were kids. She knew me before I was that new. You know, she knew me before I put on, before I started sacrificing myself at the altar of mediocrity. And yeah, so, the, you know, naturally after that moment, I felt like logistics that maybe worked out here. I think a really cool piece of your story is the partnership that you have with your wife, Melissa. Can you talk a bit about how your collaboration developed at a professional level, not just a personal level, and what it's like to work with your life partner in this sort of nomadic lifestyle that you're living? Sure, yeah. I mean, with Melissa and I, it's it's interesting because one of the most common questions we get asked, in fact, I was asked earlier this morning, I was doing an interview for um, an author in Nicaragua, and she kind of keyed in on this relationship that Melissa and I have. And, you know, it's, it's almost like, you guys, you know, are you crazy? You know, how can you live together and travel together and work together and not want to strangle each other? And obviously I understand where that, where that comes from, but Melissa and I have been doing this for a long time. You know, not only have we been together since we were kids, but the first company we ever started was actually a Shakespearean theater production company professional theater company. We launched our own theater, you know, makeshift theaters. We'd like rent out empty warehouse bays in the ghetto and just like gut it and like develop it into a, a Roman structure inside that they all just walk in. It was fun. I mean, some of the most fun times of our lives and basically drove us into bankruptcy and made us realize we, that that was the point when we thought, oh my God, we got to grow up and get real you know, big boy jobs. And then we hated those big boy jobs. But, so we've been at this for a long time, you know, even professionally. There was this dark period where I went out to stake my claim in the world of riches and wealth and where we weren't doing anything together. But prior to that, when we produced theater, I mean, I would direct and, and produce shows and Melissa was a stage manager, you know. And anybody who knows anything about theater knows that a, a director is only as useful is only useful up until uh, dress rehearsal. So the entire run of a show, if the show goes on for three months or three years, the director is completely useless at that, at that time. He's only useful up until the moment that things start to actually happen. Um, the stage manager is the person who runs the show. And that is, uh, that's certainly true. That was actually true in a very non-metaphorical sense. It, it, back in the day when we used to run theater and produce theater, 
and that is still true today. You know, I, I may be the one writing and speaking and, and you know, put, launching ideas and stuff like that, but she's, she is the glue and she makes them operate. And it, and it also, from a pragmatic perspective, to answer your question, um, we, we're different in that way and it works. There's cohesion there because we're not the same person. You know, we have this, the same ethos drives us, but, you know, I'm still that kind of like the director, the producer type dude, um, and she is the quintessential page manager and logistics and, you know, making sure that every, that cues go, go in when they, they should and lights light up when they should and the sound gets to, you know, the pro- appropriate moment and all that. Another sort of unconventional piece of your story is that you had a lucrative book contract and you ultimately decided to cancel that. Can you talk a bit about that process, why you did that, and what what you wanted to do instead? Yeah, yeah. Once we had gotten into Misfit a bit, we, we had Misfit been running for a little while because of the fact that we are entirely nomadic and our team, nobody's actually in the same place. We started to get a bit of notoriety because of that. And I actually had a, a book publisher contact me about publishing the book relating to this kind of topic. Immediately, I thought, oh my God, wow, publishers contacting me to, to write a book. And I felt this is, this is amazing. You know, I can, I can, I'm going to be important. I'm going to be, I'm going to be an author, a published author. And as I went into this um, process, even before I signed the contract, I realized this wasn't really a book that I wanted to write. Uh, there was a book that I've always wanted to write, which I'm now publishing myself. But this wasn't the book that I wanted to write. It wasn't me, really. I mean, I was basically going to be a hired gun and write an average book for average folks. Um, it just wasn't it wasn't my thing. But I signed the contract anyway um, because a lot of times we make decisions based on parameters and based on paradigms. And who the fuck can't, doesn't like sign a book deal? I mean, that's crazy. You know, when a publisher, when a major publisher walks up to you, and even even if it's kind of off your off your tack a little bit, why how why would you not? Um, and so I signed it. I got a ten thousand dollar advance, and I started going into this process. About a quarter through, it was really excruciating. Every time I would sit down to do it, this is the only piece of my work in the last five years that any time I would sit down to do it, I just didn't want to be there, and I didn't want to be writing this book, and. I realized that all I was doing was a version of what I had done in the past, you know, where I had this successful career. It was successful. It wasn't like a bad career. It was a career where I made money or uh, accolades and all that, but I didn't want to shit out and do it. You know, it wasn't me, uh, even though it would work. And I think that's a metaphor for a lot of the way that, you know, we live our lives, where it's like just because it's profitable or just because it works or just because you make money doing it. And, and that, excruciating my like, day in and day out of writing this book got to me about a quarter of the way through and I canceled. I, I called the publisher and I just told him, I can't do this. I just can't do it. I'm so sorry. And, and I, you know, it was, it just wasn't me. It wasn't the book I want to write. The cover art wasn't me. Nothing. None of it was me. And I canceled the big deal. And then I thought, you know, at that moment, when am I going to get this opportunity again? Will I ever get it you know, to be chosen? A few months later, I decided, you know what? People sign up for my writing all the time on my blog. I pursued everything. And people, thousands of people tune in for my writing. Um, so why don't 
I asked them if they'd be interested in me writing this book that I always wanted to write, this collection of essays for them, and, and publish it. And I launched on Kickstarter, and it was, a, it was a wild ride. I didn't know if it would work, but it did. Um, so now, in August, I'll be, be uh, sending out copies of that for my first book. You're also just coming off of a very unique event that you did in, in Fargo. Can you talk maybe a bit about your motivations for that event and some of your reflections on it? Yeah. This sitcom Fargo was something that I've been wanting to do for quite some time. Melissa and I had taken a train trip around the country back when we were vagabonds, just broke vagabond train hopping. And we stopped in Fargo because of the film, the Coen Brothers film. And, and you know, just for fun, just say, hey, Fargo, you know, let's have lunch and and then there's a move on. And, um, and what I found there was a really creative community, really people living that town. And, um, but it's one of the most artistic cities that I've been in all the world, you know, and, and I've met some of the most artistic minds and creative minds there. And so I, back then, when it was like, I mean, this it was just me and open our backpacks and websites that we designed for bagels, I said, you know, if we ever do a conference, District conference, so I'd love to produce an embargo. And that's how we ended up. I mean, it was a, a few months ago, I, I thought to myself, you know what? We should do this. We should bring the Mitzvahs together, do a, a you know, small artisan event, but we didn't want to produce something big. So we took the tickets were by application only, so people had to apply. Um, we didn't announce any of the speakers. It was just the concept. It was, you know, the Mitzvahs are doing a conference in Fargo. A tiny conference about making a big event of the universe, and we announced no speak. Nobody knew who was speaking until the day they arrived, and but we kind of handcrafted an entire experience, including uh, film screenings at a local cinema, and uh, collaborative art projects, and photo walks. Uh, brought in chefs that I had met, but we had met along our travels. Uh, flew in coffee. I mean, it was just a very artisanal, like the entire experience. We wanted to be. Holy and carrying this, and then we were joined by amazing speakers. Pam Slim was there. Uh, she met us at Sweeney Rao from Broadcast FM. Uh, the Minimalists um, were there. Jo- Joshua from The Minimalists was there. Colin, who's a co-founder of H and Ethical Publisher. I mean, I wore, Jason Sadler from IWearShirt.com. We had some pretty amazing speakers, and the room, uh, you know, the attendee to speaker ratio was three to one. So it was very intimate. Everybody got to meet everybody else magic definitely showed up so we're gonna we're gonna be doing another one next year for sure we really wish we could have been there that sounded like a really neat experience yeah it was uh it was fun we had a good time so the mission of A Congruent Life is to share stories of authenticity. Um, one of the reasons that I've been particularly interested to talk with you is the, the way that you emphasize living with intention in all of your work. What does living authentically or congruently mean to you? Uh, living authentically, I mean, living congruently, I think that's an interesting you know, uh, phrase. And because to be congruent means to be parallel, you know, to be parallel with who you are, I think. Living, if you're living congruently, then you're certainly living authentically. And I feel like for all of us, there's, in a way, I feel like there's the life we lead and the life that we feel like we were destined to lead. And like that, that life you live right now and the life that you feel like you were destined to lead. And that, that friction between those two causes incongruence. You know, it causes one to scrape against the other, and you're always peering out over the horizon thinking, God, I wish I could just be over there. 
And sometimes that life is a lot closer than you than you think it is. You know, and sometimes you have many more choices than you think you have. Um, some of those choices are wild-eyed, and, and they're things you wouldn't normally do, like, you know, leave your successful career on the drop of a hat. And it doesn't have to be that crazy, but a lot of us, we get trapped into these um, this metronome of a life where things are just, you know, ticking along and ticking along, but we're always glancing off the board, off the monopoly board that's been set in front of us, but we're just going around and around and just thinking, God, I wish I could, I could live that life. And um, so I think, you know, I think living a congruent life is realizing that this life is your one and only, you know, um, we don't get another one. And when you realize that and it truly soaks into your pores, you know, it soaks in to who you are, uh, I think I think it's more likely that you're going to say, you know what, well, I'm, I'm, I am going to do, I'm going to live the life that, that I've always wanted to lead and I'm going to lead and I'm going to be that person that I've always wanted to, to become. What would you consider to be some of your notable failures and what have they taught you? Oh God, so many. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, notable, I, I mean, uh, you know, I think the entire first part of my adult life was, was a complete and utter failure, you know? Um, you know, I think wasting precious, precious days and hours and minutes of my life chasing wealth was probably my most notable failure. Um, and, and I think also, you know, like like you mentioned about the book deal, I think, you know, that desire to be chosen and accepting that, that that's also, a, you know, notable. It ended up working out, but that was, I would consider, a failure. And I think what it what it taught me is that no matter how, you know, adventurous um, one becomes, and no matter how how much you you live with that like no matter how deliberate you live and, and intentionally you live, there's always that calling inside of all of us to go back to the center because it's safe there. You know, it's warm. They have milk and cookies, you know, like it's safe in the middle, you know, it's, it's safe to do what everyone expects you to do. Um, it's safe to not take risks. It's safe to not, you know, to go on vacations instead of adventures. It's safe. And, that safety and security is, I think, um, or, the, or the, the desire for safety and security and is, is, is something that's very dangerous. Um, for all, in, one, in some ways, it preserves you, and in some ways, it calcifies you to, to, to existences and things that you don't want jobs, you don't want to be in careers, you don't want to stay in majors, you don't actually want to. To study, I don't, I don't know how many doctors I've met that went all the way to medical school, realizing, you know, I only did this because my parents, you know, are doctors, and I didn't want, you know, I just spoke to somebody with that story the other day, you know. Um, so, anyway, I don't know if that answers your question, but it does indeed. It's perfect. So, what is next for you? What um, current project in your world are you most excited about? Well, first, I'm going to take a deep breath, um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to try to relax a little bit. I got I, I need to finish the printing of, of the book and, and uh, we're going to go on a book tour. Starting in July, we're going to do a bit of a, a whirlwind U.S. book tour. 
which will kind of end our North American tour that we've been doing over the course of the year. Um, and that should be fun. And then we're going to take it international and go to Europe and Australia and, um, and, and a few other places. Um, and we also launched this project recently called Good Misfit, actually four days ago, um, to raise $15,000 to build a windmill in for a village in uh, Ethiopia, Kenya called Gambella. And uh, 30 miss, we were looking for 30 misfits to raise their hand and say they could do fundraising for 500 bucks a piece. We got 30 very quickly to raise their hand and step in, and it looks like we're going to raise $15,000. And if we do by the end of June, then um, I'm going to fly out to Africa on my birthday, August 16th, and um, do some video, live video calls um, from the windmill celebration party and, and write the Twitter handles of everybody involved on the blade, and we're going to have a good old time. Is there a final thought that you'd like to leave our listeners with about authenticity? Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I think, I think authenticity and you should seek it in all things. Now, authentic, I mean, I like authenticity. I like that moniker, but I feel like that, that term that you use and congruence, I feel like that is so important to live in congruence with who you truly are and sit down and just take a moment to consider the fact that this is your one and only life, and it is evaporating. It's not a spiritual thing. It's a very visceral, real thing. It's evaporating every second, every moment. And any any moment spent at the behest of somebody else's version of what success is for you is not worth it. And yeah, so that, that that's what I think I, I, I leave the folks with. How can our listeners engage with you? Um, well, Pursuit of Everything is, uh, is my blog. That's where I write an essay or two every week. Um, so PursuitofEverything.com. And then on Twitter, I am uh, at AJ Leon. Big thanks again to AJ Leon for his patience and making the time for that conversation. Please do check out AJ's philanthropic project at GoodMisfit.com. The show notes for this episode are online at acongruentlife.net slash 12, where I'll link to AJ's website, The Pursuit of Everything, as well as his manifesto called The Life and Times of Remarkable Misfit and his other work. Thanks again for being here and listening to A Congruent Life. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. For more, please visit us on the web at acongruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? please contact us through the website or send an email to feedback at a congruent life.net. See you next time.